WNYC Studios is brought to you by Zbiotics. Seize the day after a night of drinks with Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink. Zbiotics was invented by PhD scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day. Drink Zbiotics before your first drink, drink responsibly, and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day. Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com/wnyc and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com/wnyc and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is All of It. I'm Allison Stewart, live from the WNYC studios in Soho. Thank you for spending your day with us. I'm really grateful you're here. And no, this isn't some weird audio filter. I do have a cold. On today's show, R&B singer-songwriter Umi joins us for a listening party, some warm beats for a snowy day. We'll hear another song created especially for us as part of our public song project. Wait until you hear low-cut Connie spin on Blind Lemon Jefferson. We'll also hear some history of the blues. And we'll speak with the Oscar-nominated editor of Oppenheimer. Her name is Jennifer Lame. She'll be our guest. That's our plan, so let's get this started with some gospel music. That is Aretha Franklin singing Climb Higher Mountains from her gospel album, Amazing Grace. And like many of America's greatest musicians, Aretha grew up in the church. And we hear from Aretha Franklin and many others in a new PBS documentary about the history and culture of gospel. It premiered last night and continues tonight, hosted by Henry Louis Gates Jr. We learn about gospel's origins in Chicago in the early 20th century. The film follows the lives of icons like Mahalia Jackson and James Cleveland. It also documents how gospel was crucial in the fight for civil rights. And of course, there's the development of the genre sound from the golden age to our present day and the tensions that can come from trying to meet a new generation where they are while not alienating those who are skeptical of quote-unquote secular-sounding church music. The first two parts of Gospel aired last night, and the final two parts premiere tonight at 9 p.m. on PBS. Joining me now are directors and producers Stacy Holman. Hi, Stacy. Hi, Allison. Thank you for having us. And Shayla Harris. Hey, Shayla. Hi, Allison. I'm so interested. I want to do a little bit of filmmaking for questions first, and then we'll get into some of the content. I was so interested about the way you went around this, about this, because we have well-known gospel artists. We have Twenty Clark and Dionne Warwick, Corey Henry's on the organ. But then you also have interviews with some serious, heavy-hitting academics from Baylor and Princeton and Harvard and UT Austin. Uh, ask you, Shayla, to start... Why did you all want to go in this direction with this academic angle as well as the musical angle? 
Well, um, this series is a re family reunion of sorts between mm -hmm. Stacy and I and Professor Gates. Um, the three of us worked together on the original Black Church series and, and felt like that there was a lot on the cutting room floor um, that we weren't able to include in, in that series. And so um, this, particularly the sound of Black spirituality was something mm -hmm. and this cultural and artistic expression that comes out of this really iconic institution was something that we wanted to tease out in a little more detail, both um, in, in the form of gospel music as well as preaching. Um, and certainly the fact that um, Henry Louis Gates, or Skip as we call mm -hmm. him, um, mm -hmm. is a renowned scholar. Um, we could not have done approach this series without um, these scholars and incredible musicologists um, from, like you said, from Yale and Juilliard and and Baylor um, to to help us um, contextualize this and break down homiletics and break down um, the tone and um, cadence of, of some of the music um, to to help our audience really understand the craft um, behind these incredible art forms. Stacy, anything else you wanted to add? No, Shayla did it perfectly. All right, then I have a question for you. So when we think of the Black Church, specifically Baptist and Pentecostal denominations, when we want to understand the intersection between music and faith, broadly speaking, why was music such an important aspect of Baptist and Pentecostal services? Well, as people will see in the series, there's music is important because it's a conversation on many levels, conversation with the congregation, conversation that the musicians are having with the preacher, and one feeds off of the other. And many of these spaces have been laboratories for just the creation of music. And worship, uh, music is a key form of, of worship. And with those denominations, you see just a lot of incredible talent coming out of it, a lot of incredible songs, and you see even a greater importance of it uh, as time goes on and how it's really key to just the worship experience. You go and you hear the song, it starts the sermon, before the sermon gets the, the congregation and the spirit, and then you go to the preacher and you have the closer, which is the music, and those denominations are key in creating that. Stacey, what were the social conditions that contributed to the founding of gospel? Well, we start in the 1920s, 1930s, and a lot of people are migrants. Like we start with Tom Dorsey, Mahalia Jackson, and Rosetta Tharp, so some of the key, and, and Sally Martin. And they're going to Chicago, and Chicago had its own certain kind of understanding of just worship music, and that was hymns and very much of this politics of respectability. And when you have Mahalia and you have Dorsey, they're bringing their sense of blues and jazz and their own kind of gumbo into Chicago to create just the sound and incorporate and fuse these musical genres together that becomes gospel as we know it. So it's it's based on space. It's based mm -hmm. on what people grew up with, what people understood and they bring that with them. And, and those, are familiar, those are familiar sounds that people cling to and that they lean on to, especially other migrants. Sheila, I wanted to ask, you know, Chicago, we learn, is, is the place where gospel music really grew and, and was born. But of all the great migration destinations, why Chicago? 
Um, well, Chicago was really a crossroads um, where a lot of people were coming from the South, coming from other areas. Um, it is certainly uh, a massive Black population that centers there on the South side of Chicago that um, helped contribute to, you know, the support of Barack Obama, that continue, that legacy continues to this day. Um, and so the fact that there were so many churches and so many Black institutions and so many um, places and spaces for this mix of migrants and, and the folks who had been um, already there in Chicago to kind of create this sort of big bang um, that creates gospel, um, makes it sort of this incredible laboratory for all of these things to happen. And then it starts to spread to other cities like Detroit and um, certainly out in California, which we um, end up exploring in detail in, in the series. We're discussing the new docuseries Gospel. It premiered on PBS. The first two parts aired yesterday. The final two parts air tonight at 9 p.m. I'm speaking with its directors and producers, Stacey Holman and Shayla Harris. So we mentioned Thomas Dorsey. I want to dig in there a little bit more. Founder of gospel music in, in Chicago. He goes on a journey, Stacey. Um, oh, yeah. When we first meet him, tell us about Thomas Dorsey when, when we first meet him in the series. Well, he's not Thomas Dorsey. Uh, he is Georgia Tom. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a migrant <laughs> from Atlanta, or from, I should say, Georgia. Uh, he made his way to Atlanta and, like many people, wanted a better, better lifestyle. So he traveled up north and he was actually one of the, uh, the pianists for Ma Rainey. So he was deep into the blues, deep into the jazz. And he also recorded his own record uh, tight like that. So he was, as a blues musician, he was recognizable in his own right. And in the 1920s, he had a religious conversion and he went to the Baptist convention and from there tried to put his, you know, his spin being led by the spirit on what he thought music should be. And unfortunately he was kind of frowned upon, you know, that politics or respectability but he continued to try his hand on it at the same time, continuing to, to do the blues music because that was what was really paying the bills uh, until one day he just fully um, committed himself. And unfortunately to the, the loss of his wife and his um, child, that was a true conversion. And also just many people may consider when gospel became gospel and he wrote, um, I would say a theme song for many black people, um, Precious Lord, take my hand. Dorsey, you know, it's, didn't really obviously do this alone. You point out that he had his partner in this, Sally yes. Martin, the mother yes. of gospel music. Shayla, why was she instrumental in the success of the spread of Dorsey's compositions? Well, one of the important things that we wanted to include in this series was the role of women, which I think was um, pretty surprising to us when we started exploring the series. Um, but Sally Martin uh, was a pretty savvy businesswoman who herself was a migrant from Georgia. Um, she originally started out as a song plugger for Thomas Dorsey. You know, she would go around giving samples of uh, the sheet music that he would write. But she uh, sensed that he wasn't doing enough to uh, make this... Um, a little uh, enterprise that he had profitable. Um, and so she started to sell and market his uh, sheet music and her salesmanship and organizational skills, um, eventually turned Dorsey's publishing company into um, this extremely profitable um, 
blueprint for how um, this emerging um, set of gospel musicians could be successful. Um, she eventually parted ways with Thomas Dorsey and partnered with um, Kenneth Morris, who at the time was the musical director for the First Church of Deliverance, which ends up creating um, or being the first place uh, to introduce the Hammond B3 organ uh, to gospel music, which creates the sound uh, that we all come to know. And the two of them create this incredible music studio, Martin and Morris, that becomes the largest African-American owned gospel music publishing enterprise. So she really built the engine um, that all of, um, you know, gospel's rising stars would start to um, uh, play off of. Stacey, let's play a little bit of Precious Lord, Take My Hand. You mentioned it earlier. This is one of Thomas Dorsey's probably most famous songs performed by Mahalia Jackson in this particular rendition. Precious Lord, take my hand. Lead me on Let me stand I am tired You know where to come in. It doesn't feel right. Uh, there's Mahalia Jackson singing Precious Lord. My guests are Stacey Holman and Shayla Harris. They are the directors and producers of the docuseries Gospel. The first two parts aired yesterday on PBS. The final two parts aired tonight at 9 p.m. I did want to, you know, the, the conventions were really interesting to me, Stacey. This idea of that as being a way to disseminate gospel music and the way it spread. Would you share a little bit more what, what those conventions were like? That was really interesting. Yeah. I'm, I mean, Thomas Dorsey, as I said, he attended the National Baptist Convention. And in during those conventions, they did have a music element where people would present their songs. They would try out their songs. Uh, some would be successful with it. Others would not. And that whole idea of the convention really is kind of the idea behind the national um, convention of choirs and choruses. It's like a tongue twister. <laughs> and what he really was, was key for him for people to understand gospel. I mean, there were people who they were selling the sheet music, but people didn't really know how to present mm. and how gospel should sound. So this is where you had choirs from across the country that would travel to Chicago. It would be um, like a laboratory, a, a learning exercise of how gospel should be sung, how it should be executed. 
and you would have also an opportunity to try out your song. So it was where you had the conventions where the music is secondary to the sermons. You have a space where artists are able to test their wares in exclusively in front of their peers and obviously get feedback from you know, Mr. Dorsey himself in some instances. I want to talk about, pro- you, oh, because you know, I'm sorry. Then you fast forward to James Cleveland um, in hour two with the um, Gospel Music Workshop of America. I did want to, um, since you were talking about presentation, I wanted to bring in the, the subject of whooping, the intersection of preaching and singing. Uh, Shayla, do you want to take this one? How would you describe what whooping is and why it's important to understand that when we're talking yeah. about gospel music? Whooping is um, this really exhilarating preaching style, which is a combination of both storytelling and performance and celebration at the close of the sermon. Um, and it's where the the sermon becomes the song. Um, and, you know, it, it dates back to earlier traditions of slave exhorters um, who they feel like when the spirit is moving them, the sermon gets transformed, and and that's the way that they can convey that sonically um, to the congregation. And and certainly one of the most um, prolific and well-known um, practitioners of hooping is uh, the Reverend C.L. Franklin, who was a popular pastor at New Bethel Baptist in Detroit, who's also famously known as the father of Aretha Franklin. Um, but he uh, had this lyrical style that was, uh, you know, built similarly, like um, all the folks that we've already been talking about, who brought their understanding of the blues um, and their deep understanding of the Bible together into this new kind of form. It's an amalgam of both sinner and saint, blues man and preacher man. Um, And, uh, you know, he starts to record these incredible albums that get disseminated and and circulated widely. Um, And so he becomes one of the most imitated pastors that we know of um, because so many people heard his records and heard his style. Um, as they say, you know, great preachers borrow. Um, oh, wait, sorry. Good preachers borrow, mm-hmm. great preachers steal. Uh, and so they all steal uh, this this style from Reverend C.L. Franklin. We actually have a clip of Reverend C.L. Franklin from one of his albums. He's delivering a sermon called Dry Bones in the Valley so people can hear what we've been talking about. Let's take a listen. Well, Lord, it looks like a a helpless thing. It looks like an unprofitable thing for me to go out and preach to dry bone. Some of the living soul that I preach to don't respond to me. And what could I expect from dry bone? But the Lord has them to go on out and preach anyhow. You know, God's ways, you know, are above man's ways. And you can't always understand why he orders you to do certain Reverend C.L. Franklin, of course, is synonymous with Detroit's national influence around gospel uh, what was Detroit's reputation as a gospel city? What made its culture unique, Shayla? Um, so, 
Uh, Detroit becomes the the centerpiece of gospel when a lot of folks um, certainly move out of Chicago and start coming in that direction, most notably um, folks like James Cleveland, who grew up in Chicago, going to Pilgrim Baptist, um, becoming a protege of Thomas A. Dorsey. He becomes the music minister um, at C.L. Franklin's church, um, New Bethel Baptist, where he mentors Aretha Franklin um, in the piano and sort of um, becomes a a mentor to her musically. Um, And so the Chicago sound goes to Detroit, and Detroit becomes this sort of hub um, where family-centered gospel starts to emerge. We can think of um, groups like the Clark Sisters, the Winans, um, all emerge out of Detroit, uh, which is bringing its own unique style, certainly the influence of Motown and the sort of musicality and this um, centrality of music to the culture of Detroit becomes, um, you start to see that infusing the gospel music that emerges in the 60s and in the 70s and, and heading into the 80s. We're discussing the new docuseries Gospel. The first two parts aired yesterday on PBS. The final two parts air tonight at 9 p.m. My guests are directors and producers Stacey Holman and Shayla Harris. After a quick break, we'll talk about the importance of the Hammond organ, the radio, and of course, Mahalia Jackson. That's up after a quick break. You are listening to all of it on WNYC. I'm Allison Stewart. We're discussing the new docuseries, Gospel. It premiered on PBS last night, the first two parts. The second two parts air tonight at 9 p.m. I'm speaking with its producers and directors, Stacey Holman and Shayla Harris. I teased before the break we were going to talk about the Hammond organ, Stacey. It seems like now people think... Of course, Hammond organ and gospel, they go hand in hand. But it was really considered a a big innovation. What was the story of how the Hammond organ began being used in the church? Uh, Shayla mentioned his name, Kenneth Mars. We have him to thank Mm -hmm. uh, introducing the Hammond B3 organ. We also have to say thank you to Reverend Clarence Cobbs of the First Church of Deliverance for just being open to that uh, and excited about receiving just this new kind of instrumentation. And Kenneth Morris, like a lot of people have seen in the first two hours, and we'll see, you know, there are a lot of people who are coming from different backgrounds. And Kenneth Morris had a jazz background, um, had um, a group that he played with in New York and made his way to Chicago. And he introduced the organ. And They had uh, midnight services, and that was the first radio broadcast services, and that was the first introduction of the Hammond B3 organ and how it just played with the voice, how it imitated the voice. Um, It was a new sound, so much so that um, might not have had the warmest reception, but it was so unique that a lot of churches from that point on started raising money so they could also have Hammond B3 organ as part of their service. So it's, you know, that was 1935. And you cannot go through a church today, a black church, and not see a Hammond B3 organ and just hear a Hammond B3 organ. And it continues to be a staple and always will, I feel like, will be a staple. And we get to hear Corey Henry go for it. In this year. Oh my God. That was, that was, I mean, I mean, just to see how he works to draw bar. I mean, that was, that was artistry and coordination yeah. I've never seen before. We all were just like, oh my gosh. And just, just incredible. 
Sheila, another revolutionary aspect of gospel music was the business side of the industry. How did gospel provide an opportunity for Black-owned businesses in the early 20th century? Well, we see, and we have already mentioned, um, you know, Martin and Morris, which was uh, the preeminent publishing company. Mm -hmm. But you also see things like record store owners who are innovating and recording sermons and distributing them and building their own sort of national networks. Um, one that we feature in the series is um, Joe Von Battle, um, who ended up uh, owning a record shop in the Black Bottom uh, area of Detroit, which was um, down the street from uh New Bethel Baptist, and he recorded all of um, C.L. Franklin's sermons and um, created this uh, incredible uh, repository and collection of sermons in, in more than 70 albums um, that, you know, created this style that we all um, came to know and love. Um, and uh, yeah, that just the innovation in terms of distribution and marketing and making what is was before um, gospel became sort of commercialized, just church music and making it popular music that was accessible by people beyond the four walls of the church. And that's something that we, um, that's a through line that we really developed throughout the series is this idea of creating um, new audiences for this music and this message um, to get um, to folks who may not even go to church, um, but who really appreciate the sound, who appreciate um, the message that's coming out of the music and and finding um, that connection. We got a really great, great tweet. Someone who's listening to the segment says, gospel contributed to our survival and my Black Brooklyn sheet music experience with my family. So thanks to whoever uh, tweeted that, who's listening in. Uh, in the film, Stacey, you look at how central gospel music was in the civil rights movement. And without giving too much away, I, I don't think we'll give it away because you have to see it to kind of really experience it. This relationship between Mahalia Jackson and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and the way that she was incredibly supportive of him and was able to use her instrument and her energy to help uplift him in difficult times. Stacey, would you share a little bit about that relationship and, and what we see in the film? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, and earlier I said, you know, the, there's a conversation that the preachers always have with the, the musician, and this is in the church, and it was no different than Mahalia's relationship with Martin Luther King. Um, she was there with him in Detroit where he first gave the I Have a Dream speech. And I mean, we can only imagine a weight that he was under um, for, you know, from a very young age until his assassination. And she was that bomb and Gilead for him. Her voice was was soothing. Her voice uh, encouraged him. Voice was something that he he listened to and reached out to in those times where it was very challenging. And there is a clip. It's one of my favorite clips, and where you see that. And for Dara, uh, one of our scholars, gives and just she sets it up so beautifully and so eloquently in terms of what might be going through King's mind and exactly what. Mahalia does and what she says and how she sings that just stills him and just speaks to what gospel does. Um, it was it encouraged him. Um, it soothed him. It comforted him. And that relationship, I mean, we continues on um, and we see even how she supports him up into the March on Washington. So I won't do any spoiler alerts <laughs> at that point mm -hmm. right there. Um, and also her pocketbook. You know, she was a 
top. I mean, she was an incredibly, you know, top grossing gospel artist, if not the only one at that time. And she definitely supported the movement that way as well. Sheila, something we get from the series is as gospel evolves and it goes through the golden age and the platinum age, that there's a tension between generations, between different philosophies about people who are purists, and then people who think that gospel music should not have a secular sound. Sheila, do you think there'll always be this sort of this tension within gospel? Yeah, there's certainly a tension, not just within the church itself, but uh, certainly within the Black community about this sort of secular secular and sacred divide um, and the gap and chasm between those two things that Saturday night and Sunday morning um, are two very distinct cultures. And I think what we um, came to understand in this exploration is that you can have Sunday morning without Saturday night and vice versa. Um, this expression on Saturday night um, and the penance of Sunday morning are necessary for both to um, be relevant and consistent, that they're kind of two sides of the same coin. Um, and, you know, what we discovered is that um, at every generation, at every innovation, someone is calling that new style um, devil's music, that that music isn't um, true to the spirit of gospel because it didn't sound like what came before. And then eventually that new <clears throat> art form is embraced. And then the next thing that comes along is itself called go uh, devil's music. Um, so I think that's just a generational developmental thing that that happens in gospel and certainly happens in in a lot of art forms that we see, um, particularly music. Um, but I think the really beautiful thing about gospel is how elastic and innovative it is to be able to embrace all of these new forms and new musical styles, um, and yet at its heart, um, maintain that central message of being um, the word of God and um, helping people connect to this like community um, spirit and energy. The series is called Gospel Last Night. The first two parts aired and the final two parts will air tonight at 9 p.m. on PBS. I've been speaking with its producers and directors, Stacey Holman and Shayla Harris. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for, thank having, you for having us. And thank you for giving me an excuse to play one of my favorite gospel songs. Let's go out on some Kirk Franklin. To all my people in the struggle, you think God's forgotten about you. Here's some pain medicine. Let's go!